the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome back to the podcast. What's up, Justin? Hi. How are you, Lindsay? I'm pretty stoked to talk about this giant mega hit of a movie. I am too. I actually this uh these last few weeks of watching Pretty Woman has been exactly kind of what my mood needed. It's been the movie I needed right now. Yeah, these pandemic times. Pretty Woman, it's a fairy tale for modern times. But man, is it not positive and inspirational in some ways? Yeah, I have not hated the 87 times I've watched this movie the past couple weeks. Well, there's uh, so much to talk about with Pretty Woman. We're going to get into a lot of the making of the film, kind of how it changed, how it came together, how the script went through some drastic changes, and certainly talk about the amazing cast. Such a huge part of this movie and the chemistry between the two stars. Talk about how their characters change over time throughout the script. And also, you know, some um, problematic ideas that you could think when you're watching it. But then if you um, look a little deeper, there's a little bit more to this story than, than what's just on the surface. And we'll probably go through a brief history of the genre of the romantic comedy, kind of how it's developed over the years and and how it's changed and where it's at now. And we'll also talk a little bit about Gary Marshall, who made a career on a lot of these romantic comedies that you've heard of, maybe some that you haven't. I have mad love for Gary Marshall and Penny Marshall. But man, Gary Marshall, rom-com master right there. We'll also be bringing up the music of this uh, hit movie's soundtrack. It's just hit after hit. Massive appeal for this movie. Just uh, across the entire world, this movie was a huge hit. So we'll go into that reaction to, and, um, you know, probably get into, we'll, we'll, we'll go pretty deep on this one, I think. Well, after uh, our Pretty Woman talk, we'll also get into our picks of the week. You know, I thought about doing a romantic comedy as well for my pick of the week, but I kind of stuck with just a, a Julia Roberts movie instead, and I went with Chris Columbus's Stepmom. Such a good pick. I remember seeing that one and uh, at the video store that I worked at and wasn't really interested by the cover at all. And after I eventually did many, many years later, kicked myself because it's a very entertaining movie. What was your uh, pick of the week? I stayed on the Julia Roberts tip as well and went with a movie called Conspiracy Theory starring she and Mel Gibson. A Richard Donner movie too. That Richard Donner. Always sticking with Mel Gibson. Yeah. Such an entertaining movie. I don't know how many times I've seen it, but it, it never gets tired. Well, of course, we'll round things out with our Murray moments. But before we go to our first clip from the smash hit Pretty Woman, Lindsay, can you give us a lowdown? What's the story of Pretty Woman? So the story to Pretty Woman is fairly simple. A obscenely wealthy businessman just happens into a sex worker one night who offers him uh, directions for money. And he's kind of impressed with her a little bit, um, you know, how how gutsy one could be for charging someone for directions. And um, he offers to hire her for the evening and not really under any particular, doesn't seem like he's interested really in a sexy time, just to like kind of hang out. And after they have a night together, he offers to hire her, kind of be his employee for a week and be his escort to events while he tries to facilitate this business deal over the course of this week um you know you might guess this is a rom-com the two end up falling for each other now where does the story go do they end up together do they not well come on it has a happy ending i think that sums it up really nice it's a pretty straightforward rom-com there's just a lot under under the surface but the the plot is very straightforward we'll go to a clip from pretty woman and we'll be back we'll talk about it is this where you want me to sing all of the soundtrack yeah. right now? Yeah. Okay, cool. Vivian, 
I have a business proposition for you. What do you want? I'm going to be in town until Sunday. I'd like you to spend the week with me. Really? Yes. Yes, I'd like to hire you as an employee. Would you consider spending the week with me? <laughs> I will pay you to be at my beck and call. Look, I'd love to be your beck and call girl, but um, you're a rich, good-looking guy. You could get a million girls free. I want a professional. I don't need any romantic hassles this week. If you're talking 24 hours a day, it's going to cost you. Oh, yes, of course. All right, here we go. Give me a ballpark figure. How much? Six full nights, days to... 4,000. Six nights at 300 is 1,800. You want days, too? 2,000. 3,000. Done. Holy shit! <laughs> so before we set the scene for our discussion on Pretty Woman, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about the history of the romantic comedy. Because really, around the time Pretty Woman came out, the name romantic comedy, that genre, really kind of exploded. And it's hard to remember a time before people weren't saying romantic comedy if it involved, you know, some sort of love story and, and had like a humorous overtones to it. Yeah, and pretty much straightforward. Like going back to Greek myths and Shakespeare days, this is two people meet, there's some sort of conflict, and then they eventually fall in love. The basic lined out like plot and that definitely changed over time and, and evolved, you know, and I think even rom-coms nowadays still employ a lot of things of, of how the genre started out, you know, whether it is, um, you know, two characters, a male, and this is always generally a male and a female character where we have one rich person and, you know, a non-wealthy person. And like My Fair Lady is probably the best example of this, you know, one makes over the other and makes them into a proper person. And even before that, Justin, you and I kind of talked about discovering this term or phrase, the comedy of manners, which was pretty interesting to kind of come across that this like had a term before rom-com became a thing. It's definitely a theme, you know, that's that's kind of run through 50, 60 years of, of these romantic uh, type movies. And it even evolved after that. You know, I think there was um, a lot of those comedies of manners type of thing. And then the idea of money doesn't buy everything. But what's more important is the idea of hope or the idea of love. And kind of after that, one of my favorite phases of, of rom-coms was like 40s, 50s screwball comedies. So much fun. And generally around those times, it's like, the classic, like, fast-talking, like, back-and-forth, like, type of thing. And my favorite is His Girl Friday. I love a good movie about a newspaper or anything like that. And His Girl Friday is, like, the top of the tops when it comes to a romantic screwball comedy. I love that movie. Yeah, and then after the screwball comedies, it kind of went into the sort of, like, late 50s sex comedies, uh, mm -hmm. you know, with Marilyn Monroe, The Seven Year Itch. And then we kind of went through a period where 60s, 70s, movies like, you know, Woody Allen doing Annie Hall, would say like talky, but intellectually based, you know, modern p people living in the city kind of comedies, c the conflict of relationships, um, which is something, you know, in the conflict of like marriage or people entering into divorce. I think a darker period for romantic comedies type movies the 80s was kind of like a strange period for romantic comedies. I think that's where you started, get the, the genre started forming of like the actual word romantic comedies, um, especially toward the late 80s with the huge hit with uh, Harry Met Sally. Yeah, when Harry Met Sally, you could even say that too about coming to America. In some ways, it is a romantic comedy. Um, the, the genre blender of like romantic adventure, like one of my all-time faves, yeah. Romancing the Stone. And even another Gary Marshall beloved movie, I think, by a lot of people, despite when you really boil it down what happens in the movie. But Overboard is the top of the tops when it comes to um, romantic comedies, too. Absolutely. And then, uh, you know, coming in strong, I think Pretty Woman kind of set the bar for 
romantic comedies. And then after that, Pretty Woman was such a success. And so was When Harry Met Sally. And it kind of showed Hollywood like, you know, there is a market for this, though it kind of like got labeled, I feel like in late into the 90s and like early 2000s, you know, it was the quote unquote, like the chick flick, the movie that, you know, the guy's girlfriend's going to drag him to that he has to sit through or something like that. You know, they kind of got like a negative connotation. But really, the the 90s and the 2000s and beyond, romantic comedies are like a huge market now. You know, it's like there's dozens and dozens that come out each year and generally, you know, to great success if the actors, you know, have good chemistry, like we said. And to try and stay fresh, romantic comedies kind of started morphing or started throwing in additional ideas like something that not necessarily threw the genre up you know on its end but added in something like a really serious underlining you know story or an extreme circumstance like somebody's a zombie or something like that or you know flipping genders like even with like I said Overboard the remake of Overboard all they did was flip-flop the genders of people in that. And and I think that that was something that even started happening in the 90s a lot, a little bit in the 80s too, but trying to keep it fresh. But really, all of these movies boil down are kind of the same thing. They're all this like meet cute type of thing where, you know, two people meet and it's adorable. And what happens after that is going to be when we tweak the story a little bit, like something completely new or the same story that we've seen, but for some reason it works. And like with Pretty Woman, you know, this is a story that we've seen. This is pretty much My Fair Lady in a lot of ways. Um, But the chemistry between Richard Gere and Julia Roberts, if you have chemistry between two people, man, that movie, it doesn't matter if it is the most basic thing in the world, it is going to work. Yeah. Well, all those things that we're talking about, I think, were a culmination of of why Pretty Woman works so well. And it's such a tight script. It's an intelligent script. But it, it didn't start that way. It was much, much darker before Gary Marshall signed on as a director. It was originally a movie called 3000, which is the price, you know, that Richard Gere pays to hire Julia Roberts for the week. And, you know, it was Julia Roberts' character was addicted to drugs and it was showed the side of being a prostitute is a much uh, darker and dangerous world than what appears in the Pretty Woman movie. But then uh, Disney bought the rights to the script and they wanted to make it this nice movie. So they hired Gary Marshall. Uh, Julia Roberts was already attached to the movie, to the darker version. They got some writers together with the help of Gary Marshall and reworked this script to something much, much more friendly to not only a broad audience, but uh, they brought in, you know, a lot of the, the romantic and comedic elements that, that you see in the, the finished movie. And thank goodness, really. And I, I think Julia Roberts was temporarily let go from the production after she was hired for it. She describes it as like two weeks that she felt uncomfortable and was like, I'm not in this movie anymore. And Gary Marshall doesn't remember it that way. But she did screen test with a lot of people again after she was already hired for the movie uh, for Gary Marshall. And Gary Marshall had already, you know, he had had a couple of two or three comedic romancy type movies under his belt. And he really does uh, like have a knack for being very clever with the script and the characters and their worlds sort of colliding together. It kind of takes you on this little journey of her you know, trying to make her way through his world. Also him uh, sort of like also changing, you know, by being with someone who, you know, he normally surrounds himself by yes men or relationships where he's in complete control. And in the beginning of the script, they even set up the fact that one of his last long-term relationship, uh, he asks her, did you talk to my secretary more than you did me? And she says, uh, she, she was one of my bridesmaids at my wedding. And, you know, you get the sense throughout the movie that Richard Gere has never really been in a serious relationship because he's so focused on his business, you know, relationships always coming second. That's one of the most brilliant setups for this movie is the very beginning, because it does such a good job of very, like, concisely putting together who Edward is and that he is disconnected from 
women in his life, kind of treats them like employees a little bit. Not necessarily that he's a, a dick. He's just kind of closed off from like what the idea of love is. And at the same time, we're contrasting with who Julia Roberts is and showing her life of, of being a sex worker. And this is all very, very brief, just in the few couple minutes before their worlds collide together. And it's very much right in the beginning of the movie. But it is such a good setup. We get the cliff notes of who who each, each one of these people are. And they're both kind of missing something, that they're missing something, but they don't necessarily know what it is that they've mastered where they are in life. And they're just kind of coasting along and it isn't until that they meet and find out basically that they're kind of equals in a lot of ways they just come from drastically different worlds i really like the way this script particularly sets up how to julie roberts you know having money is more about security you know security in its simplest form whereas the richard gear world of like we're always going to buy the best thing or get the best room not necessarily because we like it or we enjoy it like he he gets the penthouse and with the great balcony but he has a fear of heights but there's no practicality in his world you know he says his first car was a limo and so i think we they do a really good job of setting up his world how it's like somewhat cold and isolated even though you know he's going to the best restaurants but there's also they're setting up the fact that a lot of these situations can be kind of tense. You know, you got to get dressed up to go eat. You have to act a certain way if you're going into this hotel because uh, everybody's sort of like putting on errors. And I really like the clashing of the the classes with this movie and how Julie Roberts kind of comes into the hotel and you see immediately like people are looking at her and they never – you know, just because she's underdressed in how she has to like, you know, learn how all the, the silverware function for a really fancy restaurant and and go through a business meeting, a business dinner with Edward. They play all these situations up for humor, but there's a reality to it that, that I think makes it charming and that makes it believable. And the character of Vivian, what she brings to all of this, like her... Not necessarily, like you said, you know, knowing what proper fork to use, like that sort of thing. And not necessarily not understanding, but just that she's underdressed. She doesn't have the clothes to look, you know, quote unquote presentable. But these these are the moments in the movie that make her all the more charming and makes us like feel for her in some way and like want her to be in a better spot. One thing that I like about... Vivian is that we never really feel that she's less than like she's always very confident and even when you can tell through her body language that she's uncomfortable she's still confident in who she is and even she's still being herself even when she is dressed to the nines and at the what's the horse match it's not croquet whatever game that they're at oh polo thank you Clearly, I'm Vivian in this. Um, but even when she's at the polo game, you know, she's sitting there like, woo, 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 basically acting as if a man would, let's just say. You know, she's she's still being herself no matter what she's dressed like. When, and another thing that I think the script does a, a fantastic job of is it gets us on Vivian's side. Right in the beginning, right when uh, Richard wants her to go out and buy clothes and she the you know probably one of the most famous scene two of the famous scenes in the entire movie is the shopping montage but the first one where she goes into a really expensive uh boutique and the women there sort of look down on her and, and basically like kick her out of the store you know like you don't belong here immediately at that moment we're on julia roberts character's side we feel for her we feel the rejection and when he takes her out shopping and we have the montage of like them waiting on her hand and foot and her going back in to get revenge on the women by saying you work on commission don't you you know and they say yes and she says big mistake you know you didn't want to you know wait on me the other day at that moment i think like we're behind her 100 percent as an audience and i think a lot, a lot of that's due to the charisma of julie roberts um bringing out bringing this character to life but yeah, I mean, almost immediately within the first 15 minutes, I mean, I feel like an audience is like 100% in love with Vivian's character. The early scenes create the atmosphere for this movie. And the way Vivian from moment one, 
you know, says things are on her terms. It is how it is. And it's, you know, she, she will do what she says she will, and she won't do anything else. And the way that she's able to combat being put down or just being real in a situation. She's always like that throughout the movie. And it's almost as if the actual bad guy, or, you know, if you want to say bad guy in this movie is how like the world around her, how it sees her. And that's why, that's why we feel, you know, empathy for her. Well, one, because Julia Roberts plays his character with how could you not love her? She's so gush darn charming. But also, who hasn't felt like that in one way or another? You know, no matter who you are, at some point in your life, you know, you have felt put down by the world or or just mistreated unfairly. And it's just so easy to just go along right along with Vivian and feel when she does get revenge on that boutique woman, man. Yeah, you're in it with her after that. I wanted to say one last thing. We should move on to our our next clip, but... Um, kind of the last thing I want to say just real quick about the script is that it's such a tight, tightly written script. There really isn't any wasted moments. And I love the fact that there's several scenes where it's it's very intimate. You know, we're just watching Vivian and Richard have these moments together in a hotel room. One scene where they're kind of having this pillow talk where she's describing how she was put down when she was younger. And, you know, he's telling her she could be so much more. These are very short scenes, you know, and there's a scene where they're both in the bathroom bathtub together they're like two or three minute scenes but they they're just giving you the exact amount of information the exact amount of like moment that you need to like love these characters more and as well as like pushing the story forward you know there's there's plenty of scenes that I think are tightly wound where uh, you know we get the business end of what he's doing you know he's trying to buy this company out and that you know carries on I think like very clearly through the entire movie that uh, also is like very entertaining, very engaging. And, uh, you know, I think legitimately funny. I love the idea of the rom-com trope of two people that don't belong together and finally ending up together through this idea of, of being a lighthearted fable that can be so entertaining. And these scenes that you're talking about, I mean, when you're dealing with a movie that's two hours long, you've, you've only got, so much time to develop a relationship and the intimacy you're right Justin like the intimacy in these scenes it feels so real and that both characters are open to being affected by the other also shows that they're you know kind of coming from the same place even if they're from different walks of life that they are missing something and that they do have some like degree of like you know there's a hole And for some reason, both of them, maybe it is just because they are equals on some level, but they're, they're filling those holes, you know? Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to our next clip from Pretty Woman. We'll come back. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Gary Marshall. We'll talk about the cast and characters and how everybody got involved with this movie. And of course that album full of jams. (laughs) I'll be singing at least three of them. You all right? I'm fine. Fine. That's good. Seven fines since we left the match. Could I have another word, please? Asshole. There's a word. I think I like fine better. You know what? Just tell me one thing. Why did you make me get all dressed up? Well, for one thing, the clothing was appropriate. No. What I mean is, if you were going to tell everybody I'm a hooker, why didn't you just let I me wear not, my own clothes, I okay? Not. I mean, in my own clothes, when someone like that guy Stucky comes up to me, I can handle it. I'm prepared. I'm very sorry. I'm not happy with Stucky at all for saying that or doing that. But he is my attorney. I've known him for 10 years. He thought she was some kind of an industrial spy. The guy's paranoid. What, are you my pimp now? You know, you think you can just pass me around to your friends? I'm not some little toy. No, you're not my toy. I know you're not my toy. Vivian! Vivian! I'm speaking to you. Come back here. I hate to point out the obvious, but you are, in fact, a hooker. And you are my employee. Look, you don't own me. I decide, okay? I say who, I say I, when, I say who! I refuse to spend the next three days fighting with you. I said I was sorry. I meant it. That's the end of it. I'm sorry I ever met you. I'm sorry I ever got into your stupid car. As if you had so many more appealing options. I've never had anyone make me feel as cheap as you did today. Somehow I find that very hard to believe. 
Where are you going? I want my money. I want to get out of here. So I didn't mention this in the beginning, but this is the 30th anniversary of Pretty Woman. And it's, you know, when we do these anniversary type shows, it's always hard not to look at the movie with a modern lens. You see movies that stand the test of time and other movies where you look at them with today's eyes and say, oof, that this, you know, comes <laughs> off offensive or it doesn't hold up well. Um, and certainly we did that with Pretty Woman. And I have to say, for the most part, granted, with the storyline, this movie comes out mostly unscathed in 2020. There are some things that we notice a little bit. You know, there are people of color just in service roles that we see. Like, there are very established gender roles, that type of thing. I think the most glaringly obvious, and this is not necessarily based on the time, but just how this movie is presented, the idea of the sex work industry, how that's viewed in this movie. Um, it's not exactly the most honest portrayal, we'll say. But again, this is a romantic comedy they were trying to intentionally get away from the reality of what the sex worker industry can be like. But it is important to note that, that it's kind of glossed over in what that world's actually like. It's interesting to me how, like we already said that Edward and Vivian are dealt with as equals. There's always this idea of exchange of of commerce there's always like you know this is this is a business transaction that sort of thing we've talked about both characters grow right and by the end of the movie we kind of realize that you know we're coming out of the 80s going into the 90s when greed is huge corporations are are the thing being powerful being wealthy like that's the american dream that's what we're all supposed to do but we're coming out of this into a new decade and the Richard Gere character is not like completely shoving all of that away, but he's wanting something more and that maybe we can, you know, look at this as a fantasy or fairy tale because, you know, it is in some ways, but it is kind of cool and it's not necessarily reinventing the wheel or anything, but it is kind of shirking that idea that, let's say, um, a movie like Wall Street and the Gordon Gecko character, like everything that that movie was about, is kind of the exact opposite of what Pretty Woman is. And we're dealing with the same like big business type of corporate background. It's kind of cool that, that the Richard Gere character becomes a little more humane by being with Julia Roberts. And, you know, we see that at the end, he decides not to break up the old man's company and show some restraint and actually like make less money, but do something versus just uh, buying companies and breaking them up and selling them and not really adding anything of substance to society. And that's one thing that's so cool is he has this spirit to create instead of destroy and take down. And that's what he's known his whole life. And it was Vivian that helped him see this thing that he was was missing in his life. Well, let's get into that Vivian character. Julie Roberts in, I would say, probably her most well-known role, I guess. This was certainly, uh, she she was 21 when she did this film. Uh, crazy, she, just she, crazy. And she had really only done it, you know, she had done a handful of television roles. She was in Satisfaction, that was one of my pick, pick of the weeks not too long ago, and did a uh, a really great turn in Steel Magnolias, uh, which was her first Academy Award nomination at like the age of 20. And then also uh, made an appearance in Mystic Pizza, which has kind of become a, a cult classic. Before Pretty Woman, not many people really knew her by name or by face. And, you know, this is one of those like career defining movies, you know, where like people just fall in love with not only a character, but an actress and has been a household name for three decades. Wouldn't you say she really became the face of romantic comedies after Pretty Woman? It sure seems like it to me. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that those are the movies that audiences kind of almost demand of her. Like, those are her big hits. You know, she's done a lot of, like, darker roles in, in movies that are outside of that genre. But when she does go into the romantic comedy realm like once every five or six movies those tend to be the ones that audiences respond to the most and 
tend to be the ones that are more universally acclaimed and make money. But she did, uh, in 2000, finally did win the Academy Award for her portrayal of uh, real-life Aaron Brockovich in... I think that is one of her better performances, but I still, when I watch Pretty Woman, I'm just like, man, what a just fantastic performance, and I can see why the world fell in love with her after watching that movie. That smile. I mean, just alone, that smile, that's what's going to win her over with everything. You know, one of the most enchanting stories I heard about uh, the casting of this when before Richard Gere had technically signed on to do it, Gary Marshall took Julia Roberts over to Richard Gere's house and wanted them to meet and see how their chemistry was, see how they interacted, and basically took her over there and said, okay, guys, I'm going to step out of the room and leave you guys here, so uh, do your thing. And so they're just talking there for a little while, and Richard Gere's really captivated by her. It just says that he's really taken with her and kind of wasn't expecting that. And a few minutes in, he gets a phone call, and it's Gary Marshall, and he's like, so uh, how's it going? And Richard Gere's trying to not give off necessarily to Julia Roberts that it's Gary calling. He says, you know what? It's going okay. I don't know. We're just kind of just kind of rapping, just kind of talking here. And Julia slides a post-it note, writes something down on a post-it note, slides it over to Richard Gere and says, please say yes. And he said after that moment, he was so enchanted and and Gary, I guess, at the same time asked him, so uh, you think you're going to do this? And Richard Gere says, well, I guess I just said yes. Like just that moment, that's such a sweet, like charming thing that even the character of Vivian would do in that moment. And it's just seems very um, not like green actor, but a very eager actor and like very just wanting this to work out. And I think that that's something of a 21 year old and also someone that's just very charming and personable like Julia Roberts. It's a struggle to think of anybody that would fit better than Richard Gere. And there was certainly, he was not the first pick of the studio. I mean, there was everybody from like Al Pacino to like Burt Reynolds, I think that were like considered (laughs) for the role, but he definitely had, played more like rough and tumble characters you know he this was like i think his first role where this more like gentlemanly uh sophisticated uh you know like rich character and really this was kind of like his crossover into what younger people would know him for you know and and crossover into gaining a younger audience because you know, he'd already been in movies for a decade when Pretty Woman came out, but I was probably like maybe 11 or 12 when Pretty Woman came out. But I, I loved this movie when it came out and I'd never heard of Richard Gere. After uh, Pretty Woman, you know, I, I certainly like saw the Richard Gere movies, but um, I think this was also kind of like a breakout movie for him as well. You know, he went on to do kind of like stuck with really serious movies. He does a lot of like kind of like political thrillers, but, um, you know, also very intense relationship movies uh, as one of our favorites you did for a pick of the week, you know. Um, Oof, unfaithful. I really enjoy him in the movie Primal Fear. I know it, it seems like that movie is kind of polarizing. Either people really like it or, or, or don't. But I, I enjoy that movie and also Red Corner. I like that movie, too, that he's in. Yeah, Red Corner is good. He's also a very early performance of his, Days of Heaven. That's definitely one, a bit, just a, one of the most beautifully shot films. If you get a chance to check that out, check out Days of Heaven. Man, before we move on, I made a gross error in not mentioning my favorite Julia Roberts movie, and that's Closer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love her in that movie. Oof. That movie cuts to the core. I love it so much. Well, this movie had a really well-rounded cast. I think that comes from years of Gary Marshall, like being a seasoned director and creating so many television shows, you know, really knowing that ensemble cast. I mean, you have these great leads, but what's going to lift them up even higher is a great ensemble cast. And if you don't know, Gary Marshall is responsible for iconic shows like Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days, Mork and Mindy. The guy was around the block for a long time and and knew the importance of casting and that, you know, some things maybe the story, maybe direction, maybe some things aren't going to work, but if you have a good cast and you can depend on them, then that's going to that's going to bring everything, you know, all together. What a great cast. Like we've got Jason Alexander, who I think maybe Seinfeld was in its first season 
when Jason Alexander came on board for Pretty Woman. And I think Gary Marshall, like, you know, he's like, oh, he's a comedy guy. Like, I need someone to play, like, a mean character. Jason Alexander wasn't known for that. And he really hasn't been known for that outside of Pretty Woman. So if He's you, a Broadway guy. He's a he's a theater actor. It, it's, it's almost kind of jarring. Like, if you haven't watched Pretty Woman in 25 or 30 years and you're a Seinfeld fan and you know Jason Alexander is, like, a comedic character – it's kind of jarring when you see him in Pretty Woman because he's so scuzzy. And he, I mean, he does such a great job of playing a great scumbag. Yeah, he plays Richard Gere's scumbaggy attorney, Stucky. And Stucky, I feel like, is the, if we're going to look at Pretty Woman as having a villain, well, not only is, is Stucky awful and sexually assaults Vivian. Um, but he's also kind of he represents the crap value system that Richard Gere's character is trying to pull himself out of. But, yeah, it is jarring to see someone, you know, for comedy do such a good job being um, such an a-hole. Totally. Um, and then also, you know, every director, I think, that has has had like a long career there's a particular actor that they've worked with many times. You know, we've got De Niro with Scorsese, uh, Kurt Russell with John Carpenter. And with Gary Marshall, we certainly have Hector Elizondo, who's done, I want to say, like 16 movies with Gary Marshall, which yeah. is kind of crazy. And, you know, never really being the lead, but generally having like a, a substantial co-starring role in the film. And he is one of, I think, the the best characters in this movie um, because he really wins you over. You know, at first you're just kind of like, oh, this uptight, <laughs> play-by-the-rules kind of guy. And then when he helps out Vivian, you know, by calling his friend at the department store and helping her acclimate into Richard Gere's character's world, you really have a have a love and a respect for him. And certainly, you know, his suggestion of kind of like getting them together at the end of the movie as well. One of my favorite characters in the movie. So great. Hector Elizondo, I think, is a really good example of what Gary Marshall does so well in casting. And that is to put your friends in movies, whether they're in supporting roles or, or main part. He knows what makes a good actor. And he knows that if you can depend on... If you can depend on this one guy and he's always comes through for that, he's going to cast you in everything. And Gary Marshall was known for being very kind of old school Hollywood in that way. And that's kind of not like keeping it in the family, you know, like completely always going with with friends and family. But he's going to throw his kid in there. He's going to throw his sister's kid, Tracy Marshall, in there. He's going to go with a dependable cast like i said that's always going to make you look good and probably to round um out the main cast uh we've got laura san giacomo who plays kit and kit had a larger role i know in the original script when it was called 3000 but who she ends up in in this version uh, i mean kit's a sweetheart <laughs> When Vivian uh, tells Kit, you know, like, I went home with this guy and now I'm going to make $3,000 out of this. And Kit says, man, I gave that guy to you. I can't believe I did that. Every time it happens, I think, what would this movie be like if that were Kit instead of Vivian? Every time. Some of the comedic timing of Kit's character is so great. Just like her answering the phone and she's like half asleep. And there's some great comedic beats because it's like. Julie Roberts has just done the deal with Richard Gere to make $3,000 and he leaves, you know, he leaves for the day to go to work. And her first instinct is like, she's all excited. She's like, I'm going to get $3,000, but she's like, I'm going to call my best friend Kit to let her know what happened. I haven't talked to her. <laughs> and Kit's like, yeah. you know, we cut to Kit. She's half asleep in her apartment. And Julie Roberts is like, I've tried calling you three times. Where were you? And she's like, ma. <laughs> I love that part. And Ralph Bellamy, too, in this movie, he plays the, the older gentleman, older businessman that uh, Edward is trying to buy him out of his business and break up his company. And then ends up they go into business together and it's a happy story, happy ending uh, to the story. But Ralph Bellamy might remember him best from Trading Places, that Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis movie, or if you're like me and love Rosemary's Baby he was also Dr. Saperstein, that evil doctor in Rosemary's Baby. Even uh, dates back all the way to uh, one of the original, you know, romantic screwball comedies, His Girl Friday. 
Yeah, I recognize him more as an older gentleman, kind of in trading places and pretty woman, more so than back in the 40s and 50s. But yeah, been around for a hot second. And uh, finally, is more of like a little trivia note, uh, because he's only in the movie for about all of maybe like one minute. But uh, Hank Azaria, if you're a fan, Pretty Woman was his first speaking role in the film, and he plays a detective in the beginning of the movie. Very, very beginning, yeah. And if you're a, a fan of uh, 90s comedy, you might recognize Amy Yazbeck. I know I do. She's in this for just a couple scenes. She plays Stucky's wife. I hope her character divorces Stucky soon after. I think she does divorce <laughs> him. I think everybody lives happily ever after in this movie. Yeah, in the same way that Edward and Vivian... They have the best, most fairy tale, wonderful, equal relationship. She, Amy Yasbeck, leaves leaves Stucky for sure. I think Stucky goes down. I hope he goes to jail. That's what I yeah. hope. <laughs> um, well, before we move on to our picks of the week, uh, we just want to talk a little bit about the music. This uh, movie was a gargantuan hit. I mean, this movie made about a half a billion dollars almost in 1990, which translates to just about a billion dollars now. That's insane. A billion dollar movie is like what superhero movies make now, but to think a kind of like modestly budgeted uh, romantic comedy in 1990 with an unknown actor as, as one of the leads, uh, it's kind of, kind of mind-boggling. And not only was the movie a hit, but this was back when they would package soundtracks with the movie. We're going to have a score, but we're going to have popular music on the soundtrack as well because they can sell the the original motion picture soundtrack. And this was a, just a huge hit. So, so much music throughout the movie. And not just the Roy Orbison Pretty Woman song, which doesn't actually play until well into the movie, which is cool. And I think that the movie's called Pretty Woman and that you don't play it until you've kind of already forgotten that you already know where that originates, that it comes in way later. Such a such a cool idea. In the same way that uh, Wayne's World sort of like brought in a new interest of Queen to, to a younger audience... You know, younger audiences knew who Roy Orbison was. And on top of that, the soft rock jams in this movie are just one right after another. Like the rock set, It Must Have Been Love. Oh, come on. When it is so perfectly placed in the movie and it could not be more gut-wrenching. I've always had a soft spot for the Go West song, King of Wishful Thinking. I mean, I could belt out all of all of those lyrics right now. You certainly have been off mic. <laughs> Yeah, I thought you were going to get that on tape for the outtakes or something, but that's cool. I should have. <laughs> How could we forget to Wild Women Do by Natalie Cole? That jam? So good. Whew. And even uh, the acapella song that uh, Kiss by Prince that um, Julie Roberts is singing. Yeah, don't you just love Prince? They did not have the rights to that song, but yet it still makes its way in one way or another. And if you notice, too, uh, there's there's two spots where we see the club that Kit and Vivian frequent. And in both scenes, Bowie's fame is playing. Do you notice that, Justin? Like both times we see it, fame is playing. And like it's like I guess they just had that song on rotation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but again, great song. Good driving music, too. Yeah. Throw on the Pretty Woman soundtrack if you driving around town. There's Jane Weedland, Robert Palmer. God, who am I forgetting? Oh, Peter Cetera. Come on. 80s king Peter Cetera. You can't forget about that guy. Um, and finally, as well as the music in this movie that makes it so, I, I think, distinct, uh, the locations. This is a very like sort of like L.A., Beverly Hills, Rodeo Drive, uh, shots of downtown L.A. when he's driving in the beginning. This movie sort of just like screams right when it opens, like this is taking place in this distinct city. And I always love that about a movie. I love a movie that just tells you right away, like here's where we're at geographically. This is, you know, what's going on in the city at this time. And this movie uh, is definitely, uh, if you if you own the DVD or if you rent it, there's a great little bit where Gary Marshall's kind of like introducing the locations of the the movie and he's like your tour guide to the shooting locations of Pretty Woman. It is really entertaining. Gary Marshall talking about anything is, is very entertaining. 
I also loved learning uh, where he in 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 the beginning of Pretty Woman, all of the night shots he said were actually shot at night using the existing light and a, a special film that they had. And a lot of the reasons that these scenes were shot on location, whether it was you know that scene at night or on Rodeo Drive. At Rodeo Drive, they, they shot on Sunday when it was closed, so that's why it, it looks the way it does, and they were able to do it then. But it's so L.A. And, and shot on location because I guess technically it's cheaper than to build a soundstage, which makes total sense. And it, it's funny that a movie that makes half a billion dollars, you know, in hindsight, you're thinking about the budget, but you have to. But it was yeah. cheaper. It was cheaper to just shoot on location. And, and Gary Marshall even said, you know, some some shots aren't perfect, but, you know, they got in, they got out, they they did what they needed to do. And I think he was kind of king of get as many coverage shots and inserts as you can, because it's going to you're going to be able to cover up any mistakes that you make. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's stop there. We'll come back. We'll talk. We'll do some final thoughts on Pretty Woman. But let's get into our picks of the week. All right, Lindsay, can you kick us off? Tell me a little bit about Conspiracy Theory. This was a movie I haven't revisited yet. I thought about it the other day, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna wait till you do your pick of the week, and that usually gets me. That's usually the spark that gets me to uh, rewatch a movie. But I haven't seen this thing since since it came out in the the late '90s. All right. Here's the thing about conspiracy theory. Don't take it too seriously. And I love a good government conspiracy any day, but in real life, when I'm going down that rabbit hole of everyone's against me, trust no one, I think it's important to not look at movies for truth. There are truthful stories depicted in cinema, and these are called documentaries. And in recent times, we've even, you know, seen how disinformation can blur these lines, too. All right, I digress. One could call on conspiracy theory to awaken the complacent and hopefully entertain the enlightened, I would say. But let's not forget that this is kind of a story about a guy with a few mental instabilities. Okay, here we go. Conspiracy theory. Mel Gibson plays Jerry, a New York cabbie who puts out a five-subscriber-having manifesto-type newsletter about his very woke ideas of what the U.S. and other governments are up to when the public isn't paying attention. He talks to every passenger who gets in his cab, sparks up spirited discussions, and is an extremely educated guy. He's also the bubblegummiest version of a stalker I've ever seen on film. And for reasons we don't realize until the last act of the movie, he's developed a fixation on Alice, a lawyer at the U.S. Justice Department played by Julia Roberts. She entertains his conspiratorial ideas because he once saved her life. Jerry ends up getting her involved with something she can't deny or unsee no matter how much she tries, and everything they come across seems to give credence to Jerry's previously thought of as paranoid ideas. A good government conspiracy is an unprovable one, is what Jerry says um, a ways into the movie when Alice sees his impressively secure apartment. If you can prove it, then they must have screwed up somewhere. The usage of they or the other is all throughout this movie, and Gibson does a really good job of wrapping you into Jerry's beliefs. The complexity of his character is equally as demonstrated. Whenever his mental stability is questioned is where Jerry's boyishness comes into play. I will say this aspect of his personality has more light shed upon it as the movie unravels in the final act. Conspiracy theory has some fairly hair-raising moments, and Richard Donner is certainly no stranger to testing Gibson's physical limits. And what he does go through makes for more of kind of an action flick than I I remember that I like initially expected. As Gary Marshall says, though, every movie has at least one or two popcorn spots where you can you know go get snacks. Conspiracy theory leaves you wanting to pack away as much popcorn as possible because Jerry is just like constantly on the run from bad guys. Whenever Jerry and Alice narrowly escape an assassination attempt, dude, these parts are fun and also ingeniously clever. It's also the point where the movie kicks into high gear. And despite, you know, how unstable Jerry might seem, we, along with Alice, begin to trust that Jerry isn't completely crazy. Now, this isn't a preachy movie, though you are constantly unsettled, always on edge. You don't know who's friend or foe. 
as the viewer, the only constant is a lovable, mentally unstable, semi-stalker guy who can't trust his own memories. You're kind of in this one alone and left to trust your gut. Even with Roberts playing the straight man role, there's a point in which she even becomes unreliable. Conspiracy Theory is a movie to get us to open our minds to ideas beyond what's readily available. I don't necessarily mean anti-government, deep state kind of thing. What I mean is getting us to awaken to the idea of critical thinking for ourselves, however that looks for you. I definitely call this movie a thriller, but there is a major hint of sarcasm playfully intertwined in the dialogue more so than in the plotline. Another tip-off is that this is, one, a Richard Donner movie, and two, something that's not meant to be viewed for conspiratorial accuracy either. And Donner has, once again, teamed up with my favorite genius casting director, Marion Doherty, who nailed this movie too. The woman's just a genius when it comes to casting, and specifically Mel Gibson, I'll tell you that. And part of me might have questioned Roberts in this role, but her honesty, steadfast confidence, reliance on self and empathy, man, she was really kind of perfect for this role. And Gibson and she together, it's not like a pairing I would normally think of. And although this isn't a romantic film, there is a lot of unrequited tension. And that, by itself, is a hard thing to rein in or harness. But both Gibson and Roberts never leave us wanting more. We understand that their relationship is what it's always meant to be. So, Marion Doherty, R.A.P., you genius. Watch that documentary out there called Casting By on Prime if you have it. And ooh, how could I forget Patrick Stewart is the bad guy. Give me that any day. After years of him on The Next Generation, I mean, this is the movie I want to see him in. A severely, like, mind-warpingly bad dude. He's so good at being callous. I love how Donner guides us into appreciating Jerry and Alice, for that matter. I honestly don't think there's another movie where I've legit cared for a paranoid stalker. With that said, this is the beauty of fiction. This is what makes movies a blissful escape from reality, and hopefully viewers can differentiate between fiction and reality. Conspiracy Theory sees the best in its two protagonists, and honestly, I want to see that in a movie. If I wanted to be freaked out and have my existing paranoia heightened or educated about real conspiracies, you know, I'd watch a legit fact-based documentary. I'd argue that this movie is neither a political thriller or a romantic adventure, uh, the film's main protagonist is proved wrong more than he's proven right, even though the film hangs on the ladder. The romance is deservedly unrequited. Embracing a stalker, um, being able to actually land the object of his affection could kind of, you know, be a bad message. But there does end up being some legitimate care involved between Jerry and Alice. While traversing those waters... It never truly wavers um, away from its intention, which is to be an entertaining thriller, a light cautionary tale. Um, it doesn't alienate any type of person, I don't think, which plays into whenever paranoia is periodically proven to be right and leaves us on a happy note, even if left open-ended. And just one more thing before I close out. I love the uh, Lauren Hill cover of Can't Take My Eyes Off You when the credits start rolling. It's a pretty nice way to end this movie. Um, all in all, Conspiracy Theory is a great rewatch. I would recommend giving it a few years between like the first time you watched it and then the next time because there's so many working parts in it that you forget little things. And uh, there's a lot of surprising things that happen. Super entertaining. Yeah, I'm excited to rewatch this. I, I all I can really remember of it is like Mel Gibson being kind of like a goofier character than he usually portrays in movies. Yeah, if you like the comedic aspect of what Mel Gibson can do, he brings it in this movie. So uh, it's your turn, Justin. Tell me about your pick of the week. All right. Well, stepmom, my pick of the week kind of plays like a who's who of people from our past episodes. You know, Chris Columbus of Adventures in Babysitting, Susan Sarandon of Thelma and Louise, Ed Harris of The Abyss. Uh, Chris Columbus had pretty much made like a, a successful career on family-based uh, films of comedy and drama, and I think he was at the peak of his powers when Stepmom came out. This movie came out in 1998. It uh, stars Julia Roberts and Susan Sarandon. Julia Roberts is the younger woman who's now dating Susan Sarandon's former husband, played by Ed Harris. 
everybody in this movie is like very well off. It's like, again, plays into uh, the same territory that Chris Columbus has dealt with of affluent families that are dealing with some sort of like personal or family struggle. The movie starts off pretty fun with... Uh, Julia Roberts and Susan Strandon sort of pitted against each other of who's, you know, Susan Strandon kind of is like looking for any reason to kind of belittle Julia Roberts for not taking very good care of her children. And Julia Roberts is really loves Ed Harris, but she's having a hard time adjusting to being a secondary mother figure to these kids. Well, halfway through the movie, the movie takes like a very big dramatic turn where it is revealed that Susan Strandon's character has cancer. Later in the movie, we kind of learn that that cancer is later in its stages. And uh, we also find Ed Harris wants to marry Julie Roberts and she's going to become their stepmom. If you're a child of divorce, which, you know, so many of us are, I think that, you know, there's a lot of uh, underlying themes and things that you can relate to. Uh, the kids in this movie, the daughter played by Jenna Malone, and then there's a, a, a younger son. The two kids come off... At first, you almost just want to wring their necks, but you do kind of see the trauma that kids go through with divorce and they lash out even when they don't mean to be in their very, very mean to Julie Roberts or at times they're very mean to their own mother played by Susan Sarandon. But toward the end of the movie, they they start forming a bond with different bonds with both uh, their mom and their soon-to-be stepmom. This movie is overall like entertaining but it is a movie that uh, anytime you a movie deals with cancer you know it's going to kind of it's 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 really working for your tears there's certainly scenes which uh, are going to have certain triggers for a lot of us but overall i think not that hard to watch it's very saccharine it's sometimes i think over the top uh saccharine in in some respects it's kind of wild. The, the of anything, I think the movie's biggest weakness is its is its story is a little clunky with its characters and in situations like Ed Harris is in the movie in the beginning and he's kind of wasted in this movie because uh, he's kind of out of the movie for so long and they kind of only bring him back for particular scenes uh, to move the story along. It's surprising to me that the story is kind of like the weakest link here because there's count them five screenwriters for this movie, which is is kind of unheard of. You know, it's usually two or three at the most, but five screenwriters for Stepmom. It's kind of wild to me. It was like one of the things that uh, I didn't know before when I'd seen this movie before, and I was kind of shocked to learn that. But overall, a very family-friendly film. I think one of Julie Roberts' better roles is being a... A dramatic actor, but also her flair for charm and humor. It's really a movie that, that kind of gets you at the end. I mean, I, I definitely uh, had to pull out the Kleenex for this one. It's been since this one was rentable, uh, regularly, newly rentable, um, since I've seen it. And man, yeah, it really, really um, goes for your heart. And uh, with two such enchanting leads it doesn't even matter i mean five screenwriters is totally crazy well i really enjoy this film it's a sucker punch but it's worth it and you are right too about the uh if you are a, a child of divorce it's it's a good one for that too well thank you for that justin yeah yeah so those are picks of the week stepmom and conspiracy theory both uh starring julie roberts well let's keep on moving with this episode here's your murray moment Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. That was fun.
Love stories like Pretty Woman don't happen all too often in real life. If we're lucky, we find love in some fulfilling way. Lucky for us, the narrative of Pretty Woman leaves us believing that Vivian and Edward live a fairy tale life together forever. And Billy Murray is not everyone's go-to when it comes to thinking about love or relationships. He's been through two divorces uh, that were hard for everyone involved. And for a guy who certainly had his fair share of great loves and losses in his almost 70 years, he actually had some advice to impart to a stranger he once came across in 2014. Billy was dining at a restaurant and happened to be spotted by a few guys involved with the bachelor party, feeling inspired to give their soon-to-be-married friend something he'd never forget one of the guys asked Billy if he'd be kind enough to stop by the party and give some advice. Billy politely declined, and for reasons that I can't say, I don't know what re-inspired him, without being re-solicited, Bill soon found himself stopping by that bachelor party. All right, what do we think? Thumbs up on her? she a 100%? I want to know if this is 100%, Billy asked the group of uh, bachelor party dudes. The men all cheered for the wife-to-be as Billy built up what he was about to say. Now, I have a little experience with this. You know how funerals aren't for the dead, they're for the living? Well, bachelor parties aren't for the groom, they're for the other guys. So listen here. I'm going to give you guys some advice because it's too late for this guy. You know, she's she's 100% though, after all. I'd recommend to you, if you find someone you think is the one... Don't just sort of think in your ordinary mind, okay, let's make a date, let's plan this and make a party and get married. No, you take that person and you travel around the world. Buy a plane ticket for the two of you to travel all around the world. Go to places that are hard to go to and hard to get out of. And if when you come back to JFK, you're still in love with that person, get married at the airport. And in true Billy form, after it seems like all the guys have taken in his words, he congratulates the groom and throws him over his shoulder. And if you've heard previous Murray moments, you know he's a man known for throwing folks, mainly female co-stars, over his shoulder to ease tension, to lighten the mood. And I can't help but think that maybe part of him was trying to ease the nerves of the, this, this soon-to-be groom. This was one of the more well-known Murray moments out there, but... You know, we've been talking pretty woman fairy tale romance, so I'd want to counter that with some advice from a man who's seen a lot and knows exactly what love looks like. That is a lovely story. Yeah, it's a little cute one. Well, thank you so much for that Murray moment. Of course, anytime. Well, do we have any final thoughts on Pretty Woman to wrap this episode up? Really feel like after seeing this movie so many times, I have a, a lot of things to talk about. One of my favorite uh things that gary marshall brought up uh and this is just like a little continuity thing and i never noticed it actually before and that it was even a continuity issue really the morning after vivian stays uh in the hotel with edward she's like shoving food into her face and she's just like eating croissants and pancakes and everything with her hands and <laughs> i just thought that you know Edward ordered everything on the menu for her. Um, I just thought she was just taking everything as it was, you know, in front of her. And Gary Marshall is very quick to point out. He's like, no, we just shot that like as it was. And she was picking up different things. So she's eating something different every t with every shot. She's eating a croissant. Here she's eating a pancake. <laughs> I um, was just very I, I don't know that made me laugh because I never thought I noticed it but I never thought too much of it but it was really just that Gary Marshall was like meh you got to get the shot right the performances were the best didn't matter that the continuity was off with what she was eating and it's uh it's blaringly obvious when it cuts you're like whoa <laughs> it's like it really is but that's one of the things that makes Gary Marshall kind of wonderful is that he He's going to forsake some things that, that don't work, you know. He's going to just go, meh, whatever, to get a good performance, you know. And I, I got to admire that. My two quick little things are, are, one, you know, there was some, definitely the chemistry in, in improv with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, but the uh, I think one of the scenes that gets that big Julia Roberts laugh is when, you know, he shows her the necklace and she goes to put her hand in and he snaps the 
the necklace case shut on her hand and she kind of of course you know lets out that great laugh that she have that that was he he was just joking around but they were rolling so that was the take that they used for the movie and um the other thing uh, i recently watched the cotton club which is you know it's it's kind of an uneven movie but richard gear plays a piano player and that he's like one of the main actors and uh, I didn't know that he was a real musician, you know, was a really great piano player, but the little scene in Pretty Woman, he, he like wrote and composed that little section where he's playing the piano before she comes in and they do it on the on the piano after everybody <laughs> everybody takes off after Gear tells him, he's like, get out of here, you know. He's like, we're going to do it on the piano, you yeah. all need to leave. Yeah. yeah. Um, since you're bringing up um, his piano playing, and he is really fabulous too, let's just uh, talk about the rap party for pretty woman that was at that was at a bowling alley and has a drunk julia roberts i mean she looks a little toasted everybody looks pretty wasted every it's true and richard gears playing piano and gary marshall is playing drums it's awesome it's great i love it and it and it's obviously not rehearsed like they were just like well we got a piano we got a drum kit here it's it's a fun it's it's on the uh, pretty woman dvd if you it's like a little four-minute blip. It's a it's a worthwhile moment. Well, that uh, does it for Pretty Woman. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, next episode, we've got we're gonna really really change the the dial here. A much 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 belated uh, tribute episode to director John Singleton, who passed away not too long ago. We're gonna do Boys in the Hood. Yes, I cannot wait for this. And this this is a movie that was a big part of, you know, one of the first, I think, like, drama movies that really kind of shook me up. I was like, wow, you know, I didn't, you know, by such a young and uh, exciting director. So be a lot of lot to talk about with that movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, if you haven't, uh, please follow us on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. Uh, if you would like to check out uh, old episodes, uh, for some reason, some of the platforms we're on, like Spotify, they don't, they, you know, we're on like episode 58 now, and some of these platforms don't show our old, old episodes. So if you want to go all the way back to the teens, you know, when we were first getting into double digits, you can go to our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. We have an archive there with all of our episodes uh you can also uh get some of our merch there we've got a store there we've got cool merch all kinds of stuff from like uh, these little wooden boxes uh that we make with old vhs vhs tapes koozies uh stickers fridge magnets whatever you whatever you can think of it's it's on there all that <laughs> money goes toward uh, helping us make a bigger and better more professional podcast for your ears so please check that out if you're on uh itunes please leave us a review give us a five-star rating if you think we're worthy enough um and also if you'd like to reach us for any reason we love hearing from people sometimes you know we got an email the other day it, it really made our week someone who stumbled upon our podcast and, and really enjoyed our episode of i shot andy warhol that kind of stuff really you know it, it makes doing this uh so much more worth it so please uh, drop us a line at don't push balls podcast at gmail.com until next time i'm justin johnson and i'm Lindsay reaper thanks for listening guys